Good afternoon, everyone, and a warm welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Delbo Rohak. I'm a policy analyst with Cato's Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. Um, and first of all, I would like to thank my colleagues, specifically Ashley Benson and, and the events team, for helping me set up this, this forum. Um, the way I would like to kick this off is by... Oh, thank you. Um, can everyone hear me now? Um, well, the way I would like to kick this off is by telling you a little joke that was quite popular at the time when I was a kid um, at what was then communist Czechoslovakia in 1980s. Um, this is a joke about two former classmates who meet in the street. Um, and one asks the other, um, where do you work? Well, I'm a school teacher. And how about yourself? Well, I work for the secret police. Well, secret police? Oh my. What do you do for the secret police? Well, we unearth those who are dissatisfied. What do you mean? There are those uh, who are satisfied? Is that what it means? Uh, well, yes, there are those who are satisfied. And those are dealt with by the division for the fight against the embezzlement of socialist property. <laughs> uh, one possible morale of this uh, is that uh, it's fairly clear that Soviet-style communism and planned economy fostered uh, cronyism by creating two classes of individuals, those who were party members, who had connections, who had access to specialized shops, who were able to obtain permissions to travel easily, uh, and those were the satisfied ones. On the other hand, you had everyone else, people who had to spend one-third of their waking times in, uh, uh, waking time in, in queues. The book, which will be discussing, um, which we'll be discussing today, um, Liberalism and Cronyism, Two Rival Political and Economic Systems, argues that this was not just a unique feature of planned economies, but rather that this is a fairly general phenomenon uh, related to various government interventions to the economy. Um, and the argument of the book is, is that whenever force is used to allocate resources instead of voluntary market transactions again, uh, um, under a general system of, of, of rules, some people will be in a better position to, to take advantage of those interventions and, 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 and those policies than others. However, I don't want to explore this idea on my own. I don't want to preempt the arguments uh, that are going to be made uh, this afternoon. Instead, I would like to just introduce, introduce our, our featured speakers today, uh, Randy Holcomb, Andrea Castillo, and Tim Carney. Randy is the, um, is the Vo Moore Professor of Economics at Florida State University and a senior fellow at James Madison uh, Institute in Florida, which is a think tank specializing in state-level policy issues. He served on Florida Governor Jeff Bush's Council of Economic Advisors. He served as the president of the Public Choice Society, as well as the president of the Society for the Development of Austrian Economics. Um, he's the author of 12 books, over 100 articles published in peer-reviewed journals. His main areas of academic interest are policy analysis and, and public finances. Andrea Castillo is a program associate for the Spending and Budget Initiative at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. She uh, hails from Florida, where she attended Florida State University, where she studied um, economics and political science and presumably became acquainted with Randy Holcomb. 
Um, besides fiscal issues, she has worked on technology policy, having authored a really delightful little prime uh, for policymakers on, on Bitcoin that was published by Mercator Center earlier this year. And she also writes widely on gender issues. Um, she is a regular contributor at the Umlaut, an online magazine of commentary on innovation, society, economics, and public policy, where I, too, write a humble bi-weekly column. Finally, Tim Carney, uh, who kindly agreed to serve a discuss as a discussant, is a, currently a visiting fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, uh, where he helps to run AI's culture of competition project that examines barriers to competition uh, in various areas of, of life in, in, in this country. He's also a senior political columnist for the Washington Examiner. And last year, he served as, as a visiting professor of journalism at the Hillsdale College in Michigan. Tim has written two major books, one of which is Obamanomics, how Barack Obama is bankrupting, bankrupting you and enriching his Wall Street friends, corporate lobbyists, and union bosses, which is one book with a slightly <laughs> lengthy title. And the other book is called The Big Ripoff, How Big Business and Big Government Steal Your Money. Um, the ground rules for our meeting are fairly straightforward. I would like each of our speakers to talk for about 20 minutes, and then we open things up for general discussion, and we'll aim to finish promptly at 5.30 p.m. Now, without any further ado, I would like to turn things over to our featured speaker, Randy Holcomb. Well, thank you for that uh, introduction, Dalibor. I appreciate it, and I appreciate the invitation to uh, participate in this uh, forum. Uh, since the, the uh, financial crisis hit, uh, capitalism has been under a bit of attack uh, because of cronyism. It's crony capitalism. Uh, you uh, look at the Occupy movement that uh, started in 2011, uh, and there the big complaint was that um, you know, the 1% was enriching themselves at the expense of the, of the 99%. Uh, that you uh, you had these Wall Street fat cats, people in the financial industry who were um, uh, taking advantage of their their uh, connections. Uh, they were prospering, and meanwhile, um, a, at least a portion of the ninety nine percent they're being thrown out of their houses. Uh, so you know you have the the one percent that's prospering, the ninety nine percent that's that's paying the cost. Uh, and I'm somewhat sympathetic with that um, uh, that. Uh, uh, what we saw was uh, the people who uh, had the most ended up uh, uh, prospering, uh, getting government subsidies, and meanwhile, most people, well, policy didn't seem to pay too much attention to them. And uh, the solution that uh, a lot of the Occupy movement seemed to uh, favor was more government. Uh, you know, we, if we had better regulations, if we had more regulations, uh, maybe uh, uh, spend more money, hire more personnel to do the regulating, maybe create some new regulatory agencies, more government oversight, that's the way that, um, that we can deal with this cronyism. Uh, and uh, in our, in our uh, book here, uh, we think a little bit differently about that. Our idea is that 
if you're looking at the problem of cronyism, government isn't the solution, government's the cause of cronyism. <clears throat> and um, we, what we do in this, uh, in, in this volume is to contrast uh, liberalism with cronyism. That's a part of the title of the book. And when we talk about liberalism, uh, what we mean, we're using the term in its old sense uh, of, of uh, people who are dealing with each other voluntarily. Uh, and capitalism is the economic component of liberalism. Uh, so if you want to have a liberal society where people deal with each other voluntarily, they interact when they have uh, mutual interest, uh, you have the absence of, of force, uh, that's the way we view a liberal society, which I think is the way most people here would. Uh, and as I say, capitalism is the economic component of liberalism. So you look at crony capitalism, and that's really not capitalism in this sense. That's not uh, that's that's not a, uh, a a liberal society, and what we've seen is that um, uh, because uh, in response to problems that people have observed with a liberal society, uh, capitalism, and so forth, people have have uh, uh, come up with uh, uh, various different political and economic systems. Uh, that they thought would deal with those those problems. Uh, they've come up with some sophisticated system you know, of socialism and various other types of of uh, interventionism. Uh, and um, what we find when we look at at these these various issues uh, is that if you don't have a liberal society, so you don't have a society, well, you're going to preempt the voluntary agreements. You're going to preempt a society where people um, uh, get along with each other based on voluntary agreement. That means some people are going to have the power to use force against other people through regulatory force, taxation, uh, uh, and so forth. Uh, and you know, the, uh, the idea is, well, here are some systems that might work better than uh, capitalism. Uh, and so, you know, so okay, you know, maybe socialism didn't work that well, but uh, uh, other countries tried different types of interventions, uh, industrial policy that uh, in uh, Japan and, and Korea, uh, majoritarianism. Okay, well, you know, let's you know, rather than have uh, economic power determine things, let's give give individuals political power through uh, through democracy. Uh, and what we argue in this book is that uh, all of the alternatives to a liberal society eventually lead to cronyism. Uh, if you have big government, uh, government interventions uh, are naturally going to favor some people over others, and they're going to favor the people who are politically co connected. Uh, if you look at a, uh, at a society uh, where... Uh, there's government intervention, regulatory intervention, uh, government spending, so get subsidies, maybe tax advantages. You, you look at government intervention like this, and the bigger government gets, the more businesses profit from having government on their side. If you have a big regulatory state, then it's to your advantage 
to have the regulations favor your business or maybe have the regulations put your competitors at a disadvantage. Uh, if there's a lot of government spending, well, you want that government spending spent in a way that benefits you, maybe through direct subsidies, maybe through government contracts, uh, those sorts of things. Um, uh, and if you have a tax system that has a bunch of complicated provisions, well, maybe you can get some of those complicated provisions to reduce your tax burden. But the point is, the bigger government is, the more the profitability of, biz, uh, profitability of business depends upon these government favors. And who's going to end up getting those government favors? It's going to be the people who are connected to those who are in power, uh, the, the cronies. So uh, we make this claim uh, in the volume, and uh, really the, the bulk of what we do in the book is to look at different political and economic systems uh, and to see that ultimately, even though there's all these different designs, well, if we design a society this way, if we design our society that way, we have this type of political system, all these different designs ultimately lead to cronyism. The reason being when some people have the power to use force over others, it's going to tend to be the people who are closely connected with those who have the power, those are the people who are going to end up getting uh, the benefits. And I, I think at this point, what I'd like to do is to turn the podium over to Andrea. Uh, and if we still have a little bit of time after that, um, uh, maybe I'll come back and talk about a couple of these things. So we'll see, we'll see how the time uh, goes. But uh, I want to turn it over to, to Andrea, who um, uh, Dalibor mentioned, uh, she was one of my students at Florida State University and one of my best students, and I'm delighted to see her now in the Ph.D. program at George Mason, uh, and it was great to have her as a co-author on this project. So let me turn the podium over to you and uh, tell them a little bit more about what's in the book. I think I'm supposed to have some slides. I'm not sure how to set those up, but, but I'm sure they'll be on in a, in a second. I can wing it. <laughs> in, the, in, the, in the meantime, you can entertain us with a few anecdotes. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> um, I think I'll just go ahead and jump into uh, my introduction, and then if the slides are up, then I can take it from there. Um, so Dr. Holcomb did a really good job of laying out kind of the motivation. Um, so now I'm going to talk about a few chapters in the book that are kind of representative of our approach. And then, like Dr. Holcomb said, I'll leave some time for him to talk about a couple of other chapters. Um, so first of all, with this book, um, one of the things I was struck by in this project was, uh, so everybody has their favorite kind of political system, their ideology. You know, some people are more to the left, some people are more to the right. Um, we also talk about things like environmentalism, which is kind of a single issue um, that motivates a lot of policy. And when we talk about these ideologies, uh, most of the time we're talking about, you know, their stated values. Like, I don't think egalitarianism is a necessarily a moral good, or um, I think that humans should matter more than the environment. You know, they talk about uh, the stated goals of the systems. Um, what's less common, in my experience, has been people talking about the outcomes. Uh, or if they do talk about the outcomes, they talk about how it didn't actually achieve what the uh, stated goal was supposed to be. They very, very rarely look at, OK, so you say you're a socialist. Uh, does socialist systems actually come up with socialist outcomes? Um, do the problems you identify in the systems that you're critiquing uh, are they absent in the system that you like? 
Um, so what this project does is it looks at a number of different systems, um, kind of looks at how they worked in history and just the structure of the countries uh, that adopted these systems. And it finds that uh, the system of rules that give more power to people um, in positions of political privilege, um, those tend to evolve into cronyism, whereas the systems that have less of this political privilege, um, we characterize that as liberalism, and they tend to have better outcomes, more prosperity, more economic growth, and some might say it's more fair. So the four kind of areas I'm going to talk about today um, are state socialism, communism, uh, trying to remember my slides, <laughs> uh, environmentalism and social justice, and fascism. So first of all, with state socialism, we looked at a number of different countries. Uh, we looked at the USSR, uh, Cuba, North Korea, and communist China. And these are you know, very different countries. They have different histories, uh, different cultures. But in each of these kind of experiments, we see the same uh, forms of corruption occurring. Um, so in the USSR, you know, I'm sure this crowd knows all about why the economics doesn't work. Uh, you can't simply eradicate prices and expect resources to be allocated as if they would be in a market. Um, so in the USSR, they had to turn to something else. Uh, if you have an unworkable economic system, you know, you need some way to get resources to the people that value them the most. Without prices, uh, what ended up happening was it was replaced by influence. Um, so instead of paying the amount of money that you want for the resource, you would pay it in uh, social currency. So you see people um, in the Soviet Union uh, developing close relationships with people in the power structure. Um, so uh, you have systems called, it's called Blatt and Tolchaki in the USSR, um, Socialismo in Cuba, uh, the nucleus class in North Korea, and the Changyu in China. And what these systems were was uh, an informal economy based on uh, influence within uh, powerful people. So um, in the Soviet Union, uh, somebody called a blot uh, would facilitate exchanges among people with power and people that didn't have power. Uh, so if you were perfect. So if you were just an average peasant uh, and you wanted to get an extra something, you wanted to get food, you would go to this blot. Uh, and tell him what you wanted, and tell him maybe what you had to exchange, and he would go to somebody who had the power to direct those resources and uh, give them to you. And so the same thing you see happening in the USSR, you see happening in uh, China, you see it happening in Cuba, and it still exists in North Korea to this day. In fact, um, a survey of North Korean refugees in China and South Korea asked them, when you were in North Korea, what was the best way to get ahead? And 80% of them said, by being a member of the officialdom. Um, if you don't have those connections, you don't have any currency to trade anybody, so you're basically uh, just out of luck. <laughs> you have to wait in line, and you have to pay prices through that way. You have to just soak the cost of um, paying time and going without. How do I? Right, so we have the elite classes, and these all correspond to the different um, systems that we looked at. And then we have these influence economies. Uh, and 
some of these pre-existed socialism to some extent, particularly in China. Um, but then after this enormous power apparatus was set up, uh, it was fundamentally changed. It turned from something uh, that was primarily based on family relationships, people in the same village doing favors for each other, to something a little more insidious, wherein uh, you might die if you don't have friends with somebody in political power. Um, so the literature is pretty consistent across all of these countries. Um, I was actually kind of surprised at the number of informal uh, kind of mechanisms, the consistency of it that developed. Um, and I think that kind of speaks to the fact that uh, once you remove these liberal institutions, the only way to get resources is to uh, make friends with people in power. So another section we talked about was um, communism. We differentiate this with socialism because uh, this is more like agricultural communes, um, so small-scale uh, communities that are founded on Marx's idea from each according to his ability uh, to each according to their needs. So first of all, we look at um, secular Chinese communes. Um, so we have, um, after the communist revolution in China, and they're, they're setting up this power apparatus. Um, at one point, there was a big move towards starting these agricultural communes. Um, they were considered to be the purest embodiment of the communist ideal, and it was largely an experiment. Um, the Chinese government invested heavily in making this work. They set up a very atomistic system wherein you had, you know, the basic unit was something like 50 people, and then from there you have another uh, kind of administrative body, and then you have a, the, like 10 of those units of 50 people are a larger unit, and it just goes up and up and up. So along each step uh, of this commune organization, you have another layer of power that you have to uh, either make friends with or they're skimming something off the top. Um, so this is a problem. And um, you see people that are studying these communes in depth um, talk about how the power of local cadres under the commune system was based on their control over the distribution of basic goods, jobs, um, rations, really any kind of resource allocation they were responsible for. Uh, this did not work very well. Um, the communes uh, over time had lower and lower output. Um, the incentives were completely messed up. They were uh, geared towards destructive cronyism instead of productive uh, economic growth. Um, so they were kind of dwindling uh, for the last couple of years under the old system. Um, after Deng Xiaoping took over in the 70s, uh, he instituted a number of reforms that tried to move these communes closer to a sister system of liberalism. Um, so they instituted private property. Um, commune members were allowed to keep the income that they earned, what a thought, um, and they were able to save it um, and invest it as they wanted to. Um, they called this the responsibility system. And at first, of course, the cadres, the political power holders, were very upset. They said this would lead to you know, the destroying of the fabric of Chinese society and that it wouldn't work, but it did. Um, it worked so well that by 1981, all communes, or most communes, uh, had voluntarily adopted these reforms. Um, and they worked. Uh, they uh, saw higher economic growth, higher rates of trust, um, and that's consistent with what we'd expect with this cronyism, liberalism framework. So we contrast this with the experience of the kibbutzim in Israel. Um, this kind of case study is pretty interesting because not only is this like a commune experiment, but you have this group of people that shares a very deep tradition of religion, ethnicity, and history. 
So you might think that that might temper this um, incentive to like cheat, you know, to uh, try to get more resources than other people. And to a certain extent, you do see that. Um, religious communes tend to outlive secular communes. They have more, I guess, social skin in the game. Um, but within the literature, you still see that uh, over time, the young radicals who instituted these kibbutzim early in the early days, um, they didn't want to give up their power. They liked being the guy who controlled how things worked. Uh, they liked being the guy with the most friends because everybody had an incentive to get to know him, to have influence over him. Um, and so you see these tenures, uh, decades long, where people are in charge of these communes. Um, over time, people who are productive, who are actually creating value, they started to leave the communes. Who wants to stick around just so your output can be given to somebody who's, you know, chums with the boss, right? Um, so the less productive people stay, they're just there sucking up resources. Um, so for the past few decades, kibbutzim have been critically, critically dependent on uh, external funding from the Israeli national government, um, which is not very sustainable. Um, so within the literature, a lot of uh, people who look at the kibbutzim correctly identify the rise of this self-interested elite as a problem that's undermining the continu continued tradition. Um, but what's kind of interesting is their solutions, in, in my mind, and according to what we saw with the, the Chinese communes, are completely the wrong direction. Um, they're arguing that they need more centralization, um, that they need more accountability, <laughs> whatever that means. Um, and you know, if we look at the experience of the Chinese communes, it might not work. Uh, we saw that moving more towards a liberal system tended to have better outcomes. So it'd be interesting to see what happens if they do centralize further. Okay, so I'm going to talk about fascism and corporatism together because they're so similar. Um, so I remember when I was in grade school, I was told, okay, so there's this political spectrum and like you have the left and as you go all the way to the left, you have communism and the right who likes markets and all the way to the right, uh, you have Nazi Germany. And that never really made sense to me. I was like, how does free markets end up uh, with something terrible like that? Um, if you look at the way these economic systems actually worked, they were not free market in the slightest. Uh, in fact, some of the first uh, reforms that were instituted, uh, particularly in Nazi Germany and then later on in Italy, uh, created huge bureaus of certification, of regulation. Um, in corporatist Italy, uh, all existing corporations were reorganized into 21 state-created organizations um, that set policy uh, in accordance with other regulatory bodies that were on top of them. So you have bureaucracy and bureaucracy and bureaucracy building. And again, um, since the economy is being directed um, under the needs of you know, national goals, uh, you have people that are trying to work their way up the corporation, uh, work their way up the Nazi party, uh, so that they will have first dibs at everything, particularly in Nazi Germany, so you won't get you know hauled off. <laughs> you don't want to be... Uh, you, you definitely don't want to not be friends with people like that. Uh, and yeah, so you have cronies all the way down. Um, it clearly was not a liberal system, um, and the outcomes, I think, speak for themselves. Uh, so the last area I'm going to talk about, environmentalism and social justice. Um, they're not systems per se, but they're influential ideologies that um, shape, commonly shape rules within these systems. So environmentalism um, is a good goal. We all want to live in a healthy planet. 
Um, but we see with environmental policy a lot of time what happens is um, something that's proposed to be good for the environment is actually good for a special interest. And the first thing that everyone thinks about is Solyndra. Uh, I think this crowd probably knows a lot about that, so I won't go too much in detail. Um, but we had a situation where government subsidies were given to firms um, that were connected to the government, um, and it was a disaster. Uh, another more subtle form of environmental cronyism is um, regulation. Uh, we have a bootleggers Baptist situation where um, there are groups that actually want good environmental outcomes. They're the Baptists. They give the moral story. But meanwhile, behind the scenes, you have industries that are, you know, cozying up to the EPA, cozying up to policymakers, um, and trying to get regulations passed, either to protect their market share or to keep other people out of the market. And then finally, environmentalists themselves sometimes serve a special interest. Um, so we see groups like the Nature Conservancy. Um, they make money off of selling private land to the government. Uh, you have groups like the Sierra Club um, that are very influential policymakers, and they get policies passed with taxpayer money for their private benefit um, in our public cost. So social justice is really interesting because on the one hand, you have a liberal tradition of social justice, um, the original fight for women's suffrage, um, abolition movement, followed by uh, the civil rights movement, these are all movements wherein we are extending the same rights that everybody has to marginalized groups. And that is a very good liberal reform. Um, and it has good outcomes, not just for fairness, but also for growth. Um, economies tend to do better when you have more people contributing their unique talents. Um, but then somewhere along the way, this social justice movement took a turn towards privilege, towards cronyism. Um, so you see policies that are passed, not just trying to um, give people equal rights, but to try to maybe correct for some wrongdoing in the past. And what it does is it creates a new form of privilege. Um, the interesting thing about social justice cronyism is that you don't really see the, the people who are benefiting themselves lobbying for it. Um, what you do see are people who you know, are advocates, um, and then they get these policies that then benefit huge groups in the population, um, which might not be that surprising because a lot of these policies <clears throat> don't help. Um, so in the case of comparable worth policies, this is something that's proposed by feminists. Um, so they look at an occupation that's primarily male, like truck driving, and they, may, they might make $30,000 a year. They look at an occupation that's primarily female, um, like being a teacher or a nurse, and they might make something like $25,000 a year. And they say, well, they have a comparable worth. Why are they not being paid the same thing? Um, and so there have been a couple of firms there's been a study where they took a couple of firms um, that tried to gauge the worth of um, different jobs just based on resumes, based on the information they had about a candidate. And these three different firms came up with wildly different estimations for the worth of each uh, career. And this is evidence that, you know, we are humans, we have our own biases, and um, it's kind of hard to say we're going to be able to, like, objectively determine the comparative worth. Um, so what happens is, Privileged women, right? Women who are uh, maybe higher skilled uh, or better educated, um, they're not going to be cut out of the market by um, a price control, but less skilled women would be. Um, so not only does it obviously privilege women over men, um, but it also privileges some women over other women, um, and arguably the woman we might want to help the most. Um, so we see the same thing with affirmative action. Um, Thomas Sowell talks a lot about this. Um, so we've set up a system that 
I mean, it's very obvious that it privileges one group over another, but worse than that, it hurts the group it's trying to help. Um, so you see students that are um, put in under affirmative action policies, they get to college, um, they weren't well prepared, or um, they just face stigmatization, people don't think they should be there, and so we see higher dropout rates, and that's tragic. Um, so not only is privilege you know, unfair to the people that um, don't have that privilege, it oftentimes is counterproductive and self-defeating. That's all I have for right now, so I'll turn it over to you, Dr. Holcomb, for a, couple, a little bit more discussion. Let me just give one more example here, because you see the, the common element in all of this is people see some problem with the liberal society, and they say, but here's a better system that we've designed. Um, and, and they might perceive problems with a whole bunch of other systems. So you say, oh, yes, socialism didn't work, fascism, that was not a good system. But you know, here's another system that we think is a good system to replace a liberal society. And the, the, so the, the last one that I want to talk about here uh, is industrial policy, the type of industrial policy that uh, saw huge income gains for uh, Japan and Korea. So by golly, that looks like a great policy, right? I mean, there's one that worked. Actually, if you look at the way industrial policy was implemented, uh, it's not so clear uh, that it was successful. What happened in Japan and in Korea was that uh, the governments, in order to try to promote uh, certain businesses, and they were very export-oriented in their industrial policy, they looked at, at businesses that were already successful and already entrepreneurial, and they said, if we can give some extra help to these businesses, support them in various ways of tax breaks, um, lower tariffs, uh, eminent domain to help them get property, if we can give them support in various ways, they can be even more successful. Uh, well, and in the short run, it does make them more profitable because what you're doing is you're picking the companies that already have demonstrated that they're entrepreneurial, that have already demonstrated that they can succeed in world markets. And then when you give them extra benefits, sure, they're going to be extra profitable and that's going to help them to grow. But what you see is that over time, those companies become increasingly dependent, more and more dependent on the benefits they get from government, and so they become less and less entrepreneurial, and, uh, and so eventually more and more of the profitability that they have is a result of the government privilege that they get rather than their entrepreneurship. Now, we did see a huge amount of growth in Japan up until the 1990s. It was referred to as Japan's lost decade. Uh, and so the companies that, that were singled out, hey, here are the companies we want to support through industrial policy. They didn't help uh, Japan's growth push through the 1990s. Uh, and in Korea, which is a couple of decades behind uh, Japan, you see a similar kind of industrial policy, but the companies that were, were picked to benefit were the companies that had already proven that they were able to be successful. Uh, and so uh, what you see as a result of the uh, industrial policy in Korea, I mean, a lot of Koreans are dissatisfied with this. They're saying, hey, look, our government's got these policies that are benefiting, in the United States, we'd call them the 1%, you know, that they're, they're, they're benefiting the people who are closely associated with these corporations. So, you know, if, if uh, uh, you're part of the family that owns uh, Samsung or you're part of the management of Samsung, then good for you. But but 
uh, many Koreans are saying their success is built on the backs of the workers. We've got all these workers who are supporting the economy, and unfairly, too much of the gain is going to uh, the, these corporations through industrial policy, not enough to the common man. And so the alternative that you see in Korea, and this is a, a debate in Korea right now, is let's set aside this industrial policy. Okay, we've become a more prosperous country, uh, and what we want instead is what in Korea they call economic democracy. And what does economic democracy mean? Well, it means policies that support the workers, that provide uh, mandated benefits for, uh, for workers, that redistribute income to, uh, to people, that provide uh, subsidized education, health care, other, other types of things. So if you look at the policy debate that's going on right now in Korea, it's industrial policy, versus economic democracy. In other words, who are the cronies going to be? Are we going to keep the same set of cronies that have benefited under industrial policy, or are we going to go the route of generating a new group of cronies, uh, far more numerous, so in a democratic political system, they may have uh, some advantage there. But nowhere in that debate is the idea about establishing a liberal system, a system where markets work and people get along through voluntary agreement and voluntary exchange. Uh, so even you look at some, you know, we can look back and say, look at the problems with socialism, look at the problems of fascism and, and, and so forth. But uh, when you look at a more contemporary variant, industrial policy, it's yet another case where somebody says, okay, we see these problems with capitalism, but here's a policy, you know, it doesn't have the same flaws as these other policies, but what we argue is that when you actually look at the facts and you actually look at the way these systems work, if you don't have a liberal system that's based on voluntary agreement and mutual exchange, if you don't have a, a liberal system, then some people are able to control resources going to other people. And in the end, what you get is cronyism. The people who benefit are the people who are connected with political power. So I'll just close with saying something that I, I said a little earlier, uh, which is, you know, we see the problems of, of cronyism, and too often we argue we need more government. But government isn't the solution to cronyism, it's the cause of cronyism. So I'll close there. And Thank you. Um, and our next speaker and discussant for, for the book is Dave Carling. Libertarians are supposed to believe in distributed knowledge. So I've distributed my notes between three different devices here. So pardon me while I, I set up here. Um, whoops, I didn't mean to turn anything on. So I'm glad that Andrea mentioned uh, Solyndra um, and that Randall mentioned uh, industrial policy because when we talk about cronyism, when we talk about this sort of unholy alliance between big business and big government, it's, I, I've been writing on it for a decade, inspired in part by work that Cato was doing when I first came here as a young conservative reporter and realized that pro-business and pro-free market weren't the same thing. I've been writing about this and struggling to find the right terminology. It's one of the reasons I like this book is its effort to build a framework in talking about it. Um, I think there's still a lot of struggling uh, to be done. But Solyndra, when that came out, that this company had gotten these... Uh, half a billion dollars in loan guarantees from the U.S. taxpayers and failed. I said, this is really good development. 
this is how perverse it is to be a political reporter in Washington, is that anything that's bad is good. So this is a good development because it enables us to point to how green policy enriches a select few and ends up being folly because of, you know, the fatal conceit, et cetera. But then I saw politically how it was being used. Republicans started to use Solyndra and cronyism as shorthands for somebody who Barack Obama likes ended up either making a profit or failing, which kind of takes up a, a whole lot of that spectrum. And in one of the hearings Republicans held on Solyndra, there's a Democratic uh, congressman, now a senator from Boston, Ed Markey. And he said, uh, Republicans don't like the, the loan guarantees for the solar power. How about for uh, nuclear power? And at which point, Phil Gingrey from Georgia down the line said, wait, wait, wait. Do not go comparing so loan guarantees to Solyndra, some fly-by-night startup operation, to loan guarantees that our government gives to the Southern Company, which employs 10,000 people in my district and which turns profits every year. They just cannot be compared. So at this point, I realized the Republican position on loan guarantees for energy was they had to go to big, profitable companies. And if you read through liberalism and cronyism here, you see as you get to the corporatism section, say, this sounds slightly familiar. And the discussion of industrial policy, a lot of people think that this, you know, it's a European thing or this was just during wartime. No, this is what I think both parties here believe in, um, that Democrats believe that government ought to uh, let the free market row the ship of the economy while the government steers it. And Republicans, as I put it, love the free market so much that they want to subsidize it. And I think that's a lot what we have going on here. Um, some quotes from right after President Obama was elected. Jeffrey Immelt, CEO of General Electric in March 2009, annual report of GE in the letter to shareholders, says, I believe we are going through more than a cycle. The global economy and capitalism will be reset in several important ways. The interaction between government and business will change forever. In a reset economy, the government will be a regulator and also an industry policy champion, a financier, and a key partner. And a couple months later, uh, Immelt said at an annual conference of the Export-Import Bank, which is a government agency that exists to subsidize U.S. exports, uh, direct quote from uh, GECO, Germany is the model. Germany is a model. Why is Germany the model? In Germany, Chancellor Angela Merkel huddles with corporate leaders. She says, let's kick some rear. The Germans, he said, exhibit stronger public will and national vision. When people talk about German public will, that's always not always a praise. But um, he, he Immelt said, the companies roam as a pack. They stick together and the government supports the companies to be exporters. This was a U.S. CEO praising this sticking together as a pack. And GE also happens to be the number one spender on lobbying in the United States government. It also happened, uh, ML also happened to get appointed to be Obama's job czar. And Export-Import Bank, the agency where he was speaking, 80% uh, of their loan guarantees last year went to one company. It was not GE, it was Boeing. But all of this points towards cronyism, but in my mind, my question in reading this book had to do more with do we have to call it cronyism when it's corporatism? 
The word cronyism for me suggests something of a quid pro quo. It doesn't have to. We've got a, a definition here. And correct me if I'm missing a, a bigger definition. I thought the definition here is pretty good. Cronyism is a system in which people receive benefits from personal connections, benefits that are not available to individuals who are outside that group of cronies. And uh, the authors say, if it's, not, if it's not liberalism, it's cronyism. But in the discussion of corporatism, actually, I see something different. I see a system that is set up, and by the nature of the setup, it benefits the big guys, not through necessarily any bad motives, not through necessarily any political connections that, that predate their being big guys, but just their, their size. For one, there's what I call the overhead smash. You pass a regulation, it adds overhead to the business, the cost of doing business, and it smashes the smaller guys. This is why Philip Morris supported the Family Smoking Prevention and Tobacco Control Act that regulates cigarettes because they can afford the added regulations. This is why H&R Block supported the new rules on tax preparers because mom and pop can't support it. Not because H&R Block thought that they would, you know, have the inside to the crony. I think that's part of it. But actually, the H&R Block CEO who wrote those rules quit after uh, he wrote them, so he's not there to, to help H&R Block. But they know that they can afford the rules because they're bigger. This is why Mattel supported the toy safety bill the other year. This is why the grocery manufacturers of America supported uh, the Food Safety Enhancement Act. You add Regulation adds to the overhead, and the big guys are going to be able to survive that better. You can call this cronyism, but it doesn't always depend on relationships. It often just depends on being big. And corporatism, I love the, uh, and again, when I say I love, I mean I think it's particularly terrible. Um, when, I, I love the, the talk of uh, 1930s Italy. A law passed in 1930 organized all existing firms into one of 22 official corporations that were represented by the National Council of Corporations. That was Italy. What we had here was uh, Herbert Hoover, before he was president, basically from government forming the U.S. Chamber of Commerce because he wanted businesses to be acting together in concert. What we had was FDR in forming the commercial airline industry, telling these small startup companies, a lot of which were mail carriers, subcontract, telling these small companies, get big or get out. We're going to have only a few big companies here. Um, and we, so I had an experience similar to this on a much smaller scale. Here in DC, we have advisory neighborhood commissions that are sort of quasi-regulatory neighborhood bodies. I was on a subcommittee of this quasi-regulatory neighborhood body, because this is, we good conservatives get involved in our, our communities. And um, mine was the alcohol beverage licensing subcommittee. Now, if I'd been interested in cronyism there, that was the best subcommittee to be on, because the bar owners would come to us and plead to us. And two of my colleagues, all of whom were really interested in the improvement of the community, um, I think we were all, I don't think there was anybody there acting out of anything other than what they thought would serve the neighborhood best. Um, but two of my colleagues were legitimate Green Party members. And one uh, bar owner came in, he wanted to start the H Street Martini Lounge. Now, H Street Northeast was, a gr was basically sort of the African-American downtown of Washington, D.C. until it was burnt down during the 1968 riots after Martin Luther King's assassination. And it was a bombed-out wreck for more than 30 years. I moved in there in 2004. 
And it was after that that somebody wanted to open the first new bar on that street and the H Street Martini Lounge. So this, this guy opened it up. And then this other man came in who already owned five bars in D.C. He said, I want to open six bars on H Street. And he's, he was already credentialed. And my job there, I considered to make sure as many of these bars came in, strip away any regulations we might impose on them. But one of the Green Party members says, I think this is great that there's going to be six bars, restaurants. I just wish that they weren't all basically owned by one guy. And then I start making some argument for why that's not bad. But the other Green Party guy says, well, actually, because one guy owns these all, when we want to tell them what to do, we only have to make one phone call. And it reminded me of the, what was a Kissinger quote during the Cold War? Like, there was the United States had one phone number, Soviet Union had one phone number. He said, what's the phone number for Europe? R regulators want there to be a phone number for industry. They want to deal directly with the Chamber of Commerce. So there's all these reasons why government would want this consolidation, and not because their friends run the big companies, but because it makes it easier for them to do their job. Um, and so when I look at the stories of corporatism, I say, and of industrial policy, I say, maybe cronyism is the right word. here, And there is certainly cronyism, because once these regulations are in play, it rewards sort of the insiders who make the law, who then pass through the revolving door. But that a lot of times that what progressivism asks for is going to be corporatism and industrial policy. It is going to favor the big guys for their being big. And that the connectedness to power almost follows that once you're big, one of the advantages you have is then you hire the former staff director for the Ways and Means Committee. It's then you go in ahead and you hire the person who wrote Obamacare. Um, and the regulation leading to uh, consolidation, I mean, we've seen it in banking since the bailouts and Dodd-Frank. We're seeing it in the hospitals. We're seeing it in uh, all healthcare providers. Uh, we might see it in insurance and after Obamacare. Um, so a lot of this, I don't, when you say cronyism, it implies a quid pro quo, but even if it doesn't, it implies a personal connection. And in that case, I think you're not including the biggest problems under corporatism. But this book, in the end, I think very succinctly gets at the biggest problems of all of this and, and the roots of it. Um, it's uh, chapter 14, Cronyism and Big Government. And this is almost my motto is one of the lines in the chapter. The bigger the government, measured in both its expenditures and its regulatory power, the bigger the potential for cronyism. In other words, what Barack Obama ran on was two contradictory things. He ran on cleaning up government and increasing government. And you can't do both. And I think that if there's anything, if, if you were to hand this book out on Occupy Wall Street, you'd have a lot of capitalists. They might still be dirty and sleeping down there in Zuccotti Park, but they'd at least be free market type. And I did camp out there in, uh, at Occupy Wall Street. It just happened to be that I had, I was at a wedding and I had an MSNBC hit the next day and I said, I'll get a hotel. And my wife was like, you could save some money and sleep in Occupy Wall Street. I got a pretty good column out of it and got to um, expense my uh, lodging that night, which was zero dollars on the city, <laughs> city sidewalk. Um, but just a couple sentences later in that same paragraph, um, it talks about what is the harm of cronyism or corporatism or the collusion of big business and big government. The larger the government's regulatory footprint, the more profitability and prosperity will be determined by regulatory favors rather than by productive activity. 
In this environment, people must become rent seekers as a matter of economic survival. So what does that highlight? That cronyism, that government business collusion corrupts the businessman. It makes it so that the business will put more resources, A, towards lobbyists and lawyers, B, towards dancing to the tune that government's calling. Instead of creating value, they create cylindrical-shaped solar panels. Um, instead of investing in R&D, they invest in government connections. But it doesn't just corrupt business, it also corrupts government. No matter how well-intentioned, they write, regulations are at their creation, over time, regulatory agencies become, quote, captured by those they regulate, so that regulations benefit the regulated rather than the general public. So government, these guys talk about, oh, all this campaign money comes flowing in, and then they go ahead and they pass Obamacare, and what do they think is gonna happen? All their staffers get hired up by the drug companies and more money comes pouring in, because now, to sell your product, you don't have to try to make sure it's valuable and market it well. You have to try to make sure the regulators at the Department of Health and Human Services decide that it's worth paying for. So cronyism and, or in government intervention in the economy is not conducive to either clean business practices or clean government practices. That, I think, is one of the most important things, and that inherently, when government starts intervening, it tilts the playing field in the direction of the big guys and the well-connected. But if I, um, if I have a critique, again, it's that perhaps the word cronyism, with its implications of corruption and moral turpitude, might cover up the fact that some of this is really just, and I, this is what I said when uh, Tim Geithner left office. Some people, a lot of people who were critical of uh, Treasury Secretary Tim Geithner were convinced that he was going to immediately go to Goldman Sachs and work for the banks. And I think his policies did help the big banks. I don't think he helped the big banks just because his, his friends, Larry Summers and Bob Rubin, were there. I think that he saw during the financial collapse that we could lose this economy where there's a handful of really big banks. And there's a lot of reasons. And our friends here at Cato and my friends at AEI and the Washington Examiner can explain to you, actually, there's a lot of good things that come from really big banks. And there's things that these big banks are able to do, including bailing out smaller financial firms with their own money, um, adding liquidity. Big banks provide lots of good. And the free market response is, and to the degree that they provide lots of good, the market makes sure that they exist. And the Geithner view, I think very well might be, well, big banks provide lots of good for the economy, and therefore we need to make sure there are big banks. Not because my friends are there, but because that's good for the economy. So are we going to call that cronyism if they're either by the nature of the regulations just accidentally favoring the big guys or because the view is this is to the benefit of the economy and to have the big guys? Um, in those ways, I'm not sure I'm ready to call it cronyism. But in any event, I do recommend you read the book. It um, it's really builds a framework around the stuff that some of us have been doing in, in ad hoc reporting and a way of thinking through it and a way of responding to, as Randall was saying, the, the different answers when they say, okay, well, if this problem arises, let's shift over to this system of government. No, the problems have arisen in those situations in the past and they will again if you do it. Thank you all very much. Thank you. I, I just wonder whether Randy or Andrea would like to respond to any of the points raised. Yeah, my, um, um, my, my response would be, 
great comments, and if I'd been able to to transcribe that quicker, we could just add that onto a uh, chapter <laughs> on our book. Uh, I, I, I think there's something to to what you're saying, but the reason why government likes that bigness is that the bigger they are, the more favors they can provide to government. So you you make people cronies like like that if, to your advantage, uh, and it's. It, if you if you look at business, if you look at just the way the market works, people deal with their cronies in the market also. You know, that you deal with somebody and you discover, hey, when I deal with this person, this is really good for my business. You know, this person is a good supplier, this person is a good customer and so forth. But the key thing there is the reason you like dealing with that person, you develop a relationship over time, the reason you like dealing with that person is that person creates value for you. And in the market, the way you create value is to produce things people voluntarily want to buy. So I, I think uh, cronyism in government is the same thing. I mean, you deal with people because they create value for you. The problem is, in government, you're not creating value by, through voluntary agreement. You're creating value through the force of government. I mean, everything government does, uh, is at the, at the bottom of it, is the use of force. You'd have no reason to have government if it weren't for force. Right? I mean, if, if everybody would, would voluntarily pay for the things that government buys, you wouldn't have to force people to pay taxes. If everybody would just voluntarily do what the government regulates, you wouldn't have to enforce regulations. So even if you like government, even if you like what government does, still the only reason to have government is to force people to do things that they wouldn't otherwise do. So... In business, you, people deal with their cronies. They develop personal relationships, and, and you know, um, I think the cronyism has a negative connotation. But they, you develop these personal relationships because people can do something for you. But the difference is, in government, what they can do for you is to take from some people and and give to you. And so that's that's the perniciousness of cronyism in government. Yeah, and I would just add to that. Um, so I think that that comment is uh, a good one. And you know, I kind of wrestled this, with this uh, when we were looking at the chapter on social justice, because we're talking about people uh, that aren't lobbying for these policies, but they, they still fit under the definition of cronies, which is strange. Um, I think you know, a, maybe a better way to think of cronyism is one of privilege, right? It's not primarily about the uh, relationship per se, but it's did somebody change the rules so that somebody has uh, some kind of political privilege that others don't? Um, and that you know, speaks to your point about the bigness. We're privileging bigness, or we're privileging groups that we think need help. Um, and they have all kinds of fancy names for it, but the point we <coughs> conclude is that you know, once you give somebody some privilege, they're going to abuse it. Good. So, so I think now is the time to, to open it up for questions. I have three small requests. We have a microphone here, so please wait for your microphone. Uh, I'll keep a queue of some kind. And then when asking a question, please introduce yourselves. And if you want to direct your question at a particular member of, of, of the panel, please do tell us. Um, the gentleman in the second row on the left. Hi, I'm Jim Lowen. I'm an uh, independent scholar, a sociologist, and the author of, among other things, Sundown Towns, which I'm going to reference briefly. Um, and I really liked the panel. I thought it's a Cato. It stands for what I thought Cato was about, rather than just the kind of, I think often at Cato we get kind of a right-wing 
general conservative type thing instead of um, this is more um, specific in, in that direction. But all three of you didn't explicitly allow any uh, positive role for government. And referencing Sundown Towns, which is a book about towns across the United States that flatly kept out black folks, and some actually still do, uh, either formally with government aid or informally, uh, making it difficult for black folks to travel across the country up until the 1970s and still difficult in some places. Uh, maybe there's a role for government. I mean, it seems like there should be a role with regard to sundown towns. Maybe there's a role for government with regard to, let's say, Food and Drug Administration, because I'll be damned if I can tell whether or not this salmon has pesticides in it when I go to the store. You know, how am I going to know? Lots of different areas, of course, where government maybe plays a role, one of them maybe, to allow labor to have some organized ability to, to uh, counteract big business. Uh, we think about the, the railroads in 1890 and so on that maybe needed some regulation. Do you have any comments about uh, the appropriate role for government, or is it just government is bad, period? Uh, uh, I have an opinion on that. However, uh, I think you're right in observing that we didn't comment on it in our book because we're, we weren't talking about whether government is good or bad. What we were talking about is if you increase the scope of government, the regulatory power of government, government spending, that opens the door to cronyism. And that's true if it's the Food and Drug Administration that's protecting your salmon, although I think the market works there through brand names. If you have a brand name you can trust, uh, you'll... Uh, oh. No, the reason why is you think your food is protected by the FDA. If, the, if you didn't think your food was protected by the FDA, then brand names would have a bigger force there. But, but anyways, I mean, this is, let me say, this is, really wasn't what we were talking about. The government might be great. Government may have a big role, might have a small role. This isn't something that we wanted to, to discuss at all in the, in the book. What we were talking about is if you increase the role of government, even if it's for a good purpose, you increase the role of government, that opens the door to cronyism. And I'll add, it, on, on balance, it might be worth it. I, uh, I've said this before, and I, I've still been invited back to Cato, but I like the idea of our government having safety regulations on airplanes, because unlike with salmon pesticides, if an airplane crashes, you know, the, the cost is pretty high. Um, and so the, if the regulations are tailored at making sure this plane doesn't crash, and regulations add to overhead, and this could end up favoring the big guys, causing consolidation, driving up the prices, and I would say all of those things. And it could lead to some lobbyists, uh, some, the staffer who wrote the law getting a job as a lobbyist, getting rich, tilting the rules in favor of the big guys. And still, despite all of this stuff, it could still be worth it if it's saving people from dying in plane crashes. So, but it's something that ought to be weighed on the scale. What are the costs of this regulation is, and that's what this book says, the cost of any government intervention is going to be the increase of cronyism and that that has a corrupting effect on both the business and the government. But we might say, even with all those costs, it's worth it if it's going to reduce the number of plane crashes. One, one possible way of restating that question is to, is, to, is to just say that maybe in the real world we don't really have a clear-cut choice between the cronyist status quo and some kind of classical liberal nirvana in which government abides by, by universal set of, set of rules. Um, so what it is that your framework can tell us uh, about 
curbing cronyism uh, other than just downsizing government. So what can you tell us about policy design that sort of limits the extent to which cronyism appears? Um, sure. So I don't think uh, we have specific policies, right, to like change the problem right now. But just as a mental model, I think looking at the example of the communes, you saw when you uh, decentralized power, when you linked it more to accountability and closer to the people that the uh, people in power were supposed to serve, you saw better outcomes. And that's kind of the framework of the book. Um, like I think Dr. Holcomb made a good point when he said it's not that the uh, goals aren't very desirable. In many cases, they absolutely are. Um, it's just if you create some kind of uh, power system where people have power over others, um, we shouldn't be surprised if it's abused. So to the extent that we can decentralize power, uh, not have it in, in one person's hands and you know increase transparency, I think will diminish um, some of the problems we have right now. And simplicity too, I would add. And this is not something I've tested and I wonder if anybody has, but when they talk about banking regulations, I always think in Dodd-Frank, there's a system where you have these regulators who are supposed to look through the books of the banks and figure out if they're being too safe or too risky, while there are other rules that are proposed, just you know, sort of dumb rules to prevent too big to fail or that sort of thing, either capping a size of a bank or just having big reserve requirements with simple definition. And there's always a limit to how simple you can be, but the simpler you are, the less prone it is to gaming, both in the legislative process, the regulatory process, and the enforcement. Good, thanks. There's a gentleman in the second row who's been trying to question. Frank Mannheim, George Mason University. And I have two questions. The first one, about three years ago, there was a speaker, Robert Bradley, at the Mercatus Institute, who uh, had the same topic. He's an expert on the oil and gas industry, but he referred to what you're ca calling crony capitalism, political capitalism. He contrasted market capitalism which uh, has entrepreneurs interested in producing products and political capitalists who take advantage of circumstances where contacts and detailed knowledge of regulations are, are critical. So I wonder first if you would clarify why you prefer the term you do. And I was thinking that Mr. Carney's point is that uh, rather than thinking of this as a personal deal, kind of uh, uh, deal-making among uh, familiar people, if it's a more political or philosophical issue, then the other uh, term might be more preferable. The other question is, do you know of any liberal, in the modern sense, thinkers uh, or economists who are concerned about this problem that you're talking about? They want uh, government programs uh, to be effective, and they want cooperation from industry. So isn't it a problem if you have what Bradley called the classical example of the political capitalism, Enron, coming in and making that picture look bad? Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> I think the reason why we chose that term cronyism is because, uh, I mean, maybe we're playing too much to contemporary events, but there was so much of criticism of crony capitalism. 
And so we started from that idea to develop the idea that all of these different political and economic systems lead to, lead to cronyism uh, if you divert from, from liberalism. But yeah, I think political capitalism is a great term, so I'm all behind Bradley uh, on that. Um, and since I answered your first question, I for, forgot the second on one. Liberal thinkers. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, and I, and I think just about all all liberals in the contemporary sense are opposed to it. But um, so we're in agreement there. You know, so when uh, initially I talked about the Occupy Wall Street people, say, so well, I'm pretty sympathetic with what they're saying, but they think the solution is more government. We need more regulations. We need more oversight. We need more government. That just leads to more cronyism. So I think the liberals are concerned about the problem, but the solution they see is more government. We think that's the wrong solution. Yes. Oh no, I meet I meet with liberals all the time and, and talk about this stuff. And a lot of times we end up agreeing on the problems and as soon as we start to get into solutions, having no agreements, but sometimes there are agreements. I mean there are government, there are corporate welfare agencies they're willing to abolish, or again, simpler bank rules. Um and even capping the size of banks, not in a way where you say a bank may not be bigger than this, but as long as a bank is tapping into the Federal Reserve and the FDIC, well, it can only be this big while doing that. Those are sort of areas of agreement where on solutions, are, I, I've definitely seen some concurrence. Uh, Andre had a question. Thank you. Uh, I'd like to just to come back to the some kind of to maybe can I not, interrupt? Uh, yeah, Andre is Andre Andre of Cato Institute. Uh, sorry, uh, just uh, come back to this definition of cronyism, and my, actually maybe to the under, better understanding of the, your concept of cronyism. And since Randall several times has said that, okay, the larger the government, the larger scope of the government, the some kind of the higher the level of regulation, and so on and so on, just the probably the higher level of what the, the larger the cronyism in that particular country. So it came to my mind immediately an um, example of two countries, and I would like to uh, ask you uh, just which one would be the worst in terms of cronyism. One country is a, has much larger scope of government, Sweden, much higher level of regulation, some kind of much higher level of taxation and so on and so on. We know this Sweden. And another country like, say, Russia, that has low level of taxation, much smaller size of government, much uh, low level of regulation. So does it mean that Sweden has higher level of cronyism, a more cronyism country than Russia? Uh, there's certainly the potential for cronyism there, but, uh, but I mean, it's true you don't see it. And I think there's a history of institutions that you have in Sweden that you don't have in Russia so I'm not sure I have a great explanation for that. And I know right behind you is my colleague, Jim Gorton, who does that Economic Freedom of the World Index. And if you look at the quality of economic institutions in the two countries, according to, to his index, uh, in a lot of areas, especially business regulation, uh, you don't have uh, as much intervention 
uh, by government as you do in other countries, in Sweden. So, I mean, there are aspects of Sweden that are, are, uh, are very friendly to the free market, even though they do have a lot of government spending and, and regulation. If but, I may just, since sure. I had in mind the potential uh, response, just I have a, maybe a suggestion for uh, both of you. Maybe what you're talking about cronyism, you're having in mind not so much scope of the government, not the size of the government, not the size of regulation, because if, let's say, you have a huge government, but it is done according to the very clear rules, mm. without any potential, not potential, but the real, I'm kind of not giving uh, particular subsidies to particular companies, to particular friends or relatives, like in most Scandinavian countries, for example, on some Anglo-Saxon countries, uh, but some countries with a much smaller size of governments that are much more friendly with uh, friends, relatives, parties, uh, religions, and some groups. So maybe you're dealing with such issues like institutions that you mentioned in my response, and especially such institutions like rule of law. And what you're dealing mostly with a particular part of the rule of law that is dealing with the even uh, some kind of uh, even approach to some kind of two different subjects. And the more some kind of the the higher the level of rule of law in this, especially in this particular aspect, the less cronism you have, and the low the country in the scale and the ratings of the rule of law in this particular regard, you would uh, tend to expect much higher level of cronism. So that is why the way of probably measuring uh, this kind of cronism would be the rule of law. And rule rule of law, I think, can diminish. Um uh can diminish cronyism but even and there's some examples in the book but the example that comes to mind i, I mentioned the after there was all those toys in 2007 that ended up with too much lead paint a couple kids got sick congress passes a, a consumer product safety enhancement act and it says you have to get outside testing for any child any product made for kids um and but you are allowed to get inside testing you're allowed to set up your own testing facility if it's firewalled off from the main manufacturing if it's big enough blah 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 as far as i know one company has ever gotten that exemption and that's mattel who made the lead toys in the first place who's a number one manufacturer of uh of toys in the united states and who basically wrote in that provision now i and there was lobbyists for mattel who worked for one of the senators who wrote i don't think you have to attribute any of that to corruption or anything like that it's that mattel was able to afford the lobbyists who could get in the door and that this and that you can posit lawmakers and staffers who are trying to make the best possible law that mattel said look i understand why you want this third-party testing but it can be just as efficacious to have in-house testing and that argument might have been completely correct but the smaller guys the dad the grandpa who cars chairs for kids in his garage he couldn't hire the former legislative director to Amy Klo Senator Amy Klobuchar, so he didn't get his concern made. So that's still rule of law might never be varied from in that whole thing, but just the fact that the government is getting involved in the regulatory basis is tilting the playing field in in the connection of uh, the bigger guys. And ultimately, from a bigger perspective, you can say, well, this is cronyism because the guys with the better connections ended up doing better or more when, because the government got involved. And also, I wonder about the potential for big government spending to corrupt the rule of law. Um, you, uh, you get bigger government, uh, more and more of your success then depends upon 
the connections that you have. And so even things that seem like they're in the public interest end up being a special interest issue. Uh, and I, I remember the first time I was really struck by this, it was back in the 70s, and I was a subscriber to the Atlanta newspaper, and the Department of Defense was looking at a um, heavy uh, transport aircraft, uh, and they were looking at whether to go with the C-5B from Lockheed, based in Georgia, uh, or Boeing also had a proposal that was a derivative of the, of the 747. I'm reading the, the, the Atlanta newspaper every day on this, and all they talked about was the advantages to Georgia of Lockheed getting the contract. They never said it was a better aircraft or anything like that. It was all, uh, you know, the special interest benefits. And so you think, you know, national defense, public interest, and so forth. But even there, government spending, I think, has the potential to corrupt rule of law and lead to cronyism. I mean, we, you haven't seen that too much, I don't think, in Sweden, although I can't claim to be a big expert on Sweden, obviously not as corrupt as Russia. Um, but nevertheless, you wonder, when, when government gets big like that, if it doesn't compromise rule of law, it doesn't erode a country's values. I think one last quick point to make. Uh, so the USSR, while today uh, their scope of government might be smaller, I imagine that. <laughs> Sorry, I'm still thinking about the book, Russia. Um, I imagine that uh, many of the kind of relationships that were formed in the USSR might still hold over today. So that might uh, explain some of the higher levels of corruption there, despite the fact that their government scope is lower than we might have thought it would be. Right. Gentlemen on the extreme right. Uh, thank you. Um, Pat Spann, just represent myself. Um, I was, you made reference to it earlier. I wonder if I could pick your, your um, get an opinion, a working definition of the top 1%. I've always wondered, is this like annual AGI, uh, adjusted gross income, or is it net worth? And if, if you guys have an idea of when you throw out that number, the top 1%, I've always been curious, what, what actually is that referring to? Can you, can you give some sort of uh, dollar amount? See, my answer to that question is no. Uh, and the reason that I referred to that was just because it's been so much in the press, the Occupy Wall Street people talking about the 1% and the 99%. So I really wasn't using it when I spoke. I wasn't using it to refer to a particular 1% of people, but rather just in the same way that the Occupy people were talking about a privileged group, a small privileged group at the top. Good. I think we have space for one last question. Um, gentleman, the pink jumper. Hi, I'm um, Takahiro Yoshino from American University. And I would like to know if a country did not start with liberalism, um, how that country shift to liberalism? I said, that's too hard of a question for me. <laughs> you see, I mean, if you were to ask me, what does a country need to do to become liberal and to become prosperous? I think I know the answer to that question. But if you were to ask me, so if you have a country with poor institutions, illiberal institutions, how do you make that transformation happen? That's a, that's a tough question. Um, I don't know, maybe somebody else has a, a, a good answer to it. But I think if there was an easy answer to that question, we wouldn't see so many 
poor countries today that have illiberal institutions. And I, I can comment partly on why that's hard. Sorry, I'm going to unanswer your question here. Um, there's a vicious circle with cronyism and with this stuff that the more that the government gets bigger, the more the businesses invest in lobbyists and in politics, and the more that businesses are invested in lobbyists and politics, the more they see ways to benefit by pushing more government. And so I spend all my time trying to figure out, is there a way to sort of reverse that, to get a, a virtuous circle going on? And there are some people who try to kind of do these um, multilateral disarmament thing. On the tax code, Jim Pinkerton tries to bring in all these different corporations and say, we're all going to support tax reform that gets rid of all these carve-outs, um, moves towards a, a, a simpler tax code, which I think is a move towards uh, liberalism <laughs> in this sense. Um, and But I don't know. I haven't seen any of these succeed yet well enough to uh, prescribe any of them. But yeah, look at what Jim Pinkerton's doing with the tax code. Sometimes you get... Um, some good billionaires. I'm a big fan of Charles and David Koch shelling out lots of money. I'm, am I allowed to say that here? I'm a big fan of them sh sh shelling out lots of money to fund um, efforts to do this uh, just because they're ideologues. Um, it's it's tough. I, I haven't seen anything succeed yet, though. Thank you. I think Andre wanted to meet, make a very short point. <laughs> I'm sorry, it's not a question, it's just a comment, just to give intellectual, uh, f the food for intellectual thought and for further discussions, uh, just especially based on the uh, latest comments. Just one more historical example, Georgia, not the state in the United States, but the country uh, in the Southern Caucasus. In, in year 2003, country had a very small size of government, one of the smallest in the world, historically. It's about kind of 11 or 13% of GDP was redistributed. Uh, with a very low, low level of taxation, nobody was able to collect it. It was unbelievable cronyism, uh, corruption, some kind of institutions uh, in modern words, uh, in mo modern meaning of the word, did not exist and so on. And after that, there was a road revolution, Saakashvili came to power, uh, this libertarian team came to power as well, implemented reforms, and size of government increased by, and by 30, up to 35% of GDP, which is right now. And at the same time, the uh, quality of institutions improved unbelievably, just in all ratings of economic freedom, doing business, just uh, world competitors, Georgia jumped up enormously. So, and just uh, some of Georgian police became one of the best uh, uh, police in the world, that not taking bribes and so on, just they can continue. And this example probably shows these probable discrepancies uh, between the traditional understanding of size of government and the amount of regulation, uh, the level of taxation, and the quality of institutions. And some of them, what you're probably talking about, the, and the, how the government operates, how society operates, including this cronyism, which cronyism actually did not completely, uh, some kind of, uh, almost completely, uh, some kind of killed uh, in Georgia and did not exist until new government, uh, arrived last year, which actually reversed uh, all the results of these uh, nine years of reforms. But that's uh, a different story. A, a very quick analogy domestically, our minerals management service, which doesn't have enough money to actually inspect all the offshore drilling, is probably one of the more actual cronious parts of our government because it has a job that's bigger than what it's able to carry out. And that's where the arbitrariness is more likely to come in.
So the it's big in that its job is big, but it's small in that it's not a lot of people and not a lot of spending. So that could somehow be analogous. And just another comment on, on Georgia, because that is an amazing example. Um, but nevertheless, uh, Saakashvili, well, I guess he's up for election October 1st. But Saakashvili's party, yes, he's the president still until October 1st, but he's lost the prime minister to Ivanishvili. Uh, the prime ministership went to the opposition party in Georgia. But the, uh, the knock against Saakashvili in Georgia was that although, yes, a lot of good things happened, but nevertheless, there was a lot of cronyism that was going on, that he could, did favors for his friends, that he appropriated. Okay. I was in Georgia in August talking to Georgians about this. Okay. I'm, just, I, I'm telling you what Georgians said to me when I was in Georgia. And a lot of them, they accuse him of election fraud. They accuse him of confiscating property. Okay, okay. Uh, so uh, you're a Saakashvili fan, and that's no, fine. And No, no. no but, uh, but what I'm saying is the Georgians themselves that I talked to when I was in Georgia in August, this was a knock against him that there was growing cronyism under Saakashvili. Well, maybe that's wrong, but that's what Georgians told me who live there under the regime. 